I just had that sinking feeling like I had made a mistake, you know, which happens every day. So it's, so anyway, um, thank you. Yeah. I just want to say thank you to Carlos too. I don't, I keep every Sunday I try to, I do this and I forget to do it, but you know, Carlos is such a faithful uh, guy and uh, I appreciate his ministry. And um, if you've ever not been able to be at a service on a Sunday morning and been able to see us on Facebook Live, you can thank Carlos for that because he does that. So thank you, my friend. And, uh, and just you, got, you and Angie are both a blessing. Um, this morning we're going to look at 1 Corinthians, actually, three chapters. 1 Corinthians chapters 8, 9, and 10. And I, I mean it when I say it, it'll be to your benefit if you have your Bible with me open or your, or your phone or, or whatever that you use to read your Bible on, um, because we're going to be at those, we're going to go through three chapters in the time that we have left this morning. Um, this morning's message is pretty personal for me. I'll just start with that and keep it real with you. I... Uh, Boy, I, um, about uh, I would say the last eight months of my of my walk with Jesus have been some of the best in my whole life, and I'm very thankful for that and what God's been doing. And then coming into our ministry in Peru, we went to Peru uh, several weeks ago, you know, and man, I was just I was sailing. It was great, and uh, Peru was awesome. And then coming off of that. Um, got to go right away into a pastor's conference up in Vermont, and, and that was awesome, and it was great, great time, great four days, three days away. And, um, and then since then, uh, it's kind of like, uh, you know, at the ocean, you know, the, the tide comes in, and then it sort of goes out. And I would say that in my walk with Jesus in the last couple of weeks, I felt like the tide has been going out. Like there's a, like there's, I'm not in, it's just, the zip isn't there. It's not like it was. Have you ever had that? Anybody? Am I? Okay. I mean, if your walk with God is just one success after another, please let us know what you're doing so we can do that, because I'd like to have the secret. And, um, and so I've been really bothered by that. I don't, like, I don't like that, and I'm looking at my life, and I'm saying, God, what is it? What's happening? What on earth is going on? Because I can't point to any big, grievous sin. Like, I, you know, that would be the obvious one, right? You go, okay, who did you murder? Okay, come on, confess, right? I know there's got to be some big, grievous, heinous sin that I committed to cause this. I can't think of one. I can't remember one. I'm, I'm, you know, you've been there? And so then, so now what? And... Um, I'm discovering this, that uh, it's not always the big heinous sin, actually. Sometimes it's very subtle. And that, if I, and that I need to be very vigilant about my connection with God. And if I'm not, I can easily lose it. I'm also discovering this, that, you know, the two greatest commandments, you know them, right? Christians know it like the, like the back of your hand. Love God, love your neighbor, right? Love God, love others. Isn't that interesting that God would link those two things together? 
that my attitude towards other people actually affects my connection with God. And vice versa, my attitude towards God and connection with God affects my relationship with others. They go back and forth. And so sometimes it's just as subtle as that. One of the marks of my maturity and your maturity in Christ is your ability to not use the freedom that's been given to you. It's your ability to throttle back on your rights in order to honor someone else. And so as I was praying about all of this, God took me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It's, it's been a Bible verse that I memorized a long time ago. And it, and it says this, that no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear, but he will pretend 13 out so that you can stand up under it. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And so I was, taking, I was looking at that, thinking, well, that's, that's good to know. Okay, so... So God's got this. Some people misunderstand that verse and they say, well, God won't allow me, God won't let, you know, give me more than I can handle. You've heard that before maybe? That's really a, a misuse of that scripture verse. It's not saying that God won't give you more than you can handle. Friends, of course he's going to give you more than you can handle. That's the whole point. We're supposed to walk by faith, not by sight. You understand the whole point of this thing is you and I are in the deep end all the time. That's the whole idea. And you can't swim, and you need God. He's, that's the whole point of the Christian life. So it's not about him not giving you more than you can handle. That's not what that verse is saying. So I'm digging around in there, and then I find the context. And sometimes the context tell. I mean, well, not sometimes. It always. The context always tells you everything you need to know about a truth that you find in the Bible. And if you want to understand 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, you've got to go all the way back to 1... You know what? I look better with the lights off, I think, frankly. That's... Wow. Okay. You've got to go all the way back. They're nice, though. Thanks, guys. I'm just joking with you. But I do look better in the dark. I'm just saying. So I have a face for radio, I've been told. So... You go, so to understand 1 Corinthians 10, 13, you've got to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. And so would you please, I'm going to break all the rules this morning of homiletics, and, and we're going to, you know, I'm told that in the Facebook generation, you can only go like 10 seconds at a time. Well, we're going to break that. We're going to go like 45 minutes, and I'm going to read an entirely long piece of passage of scripture, and and fully expect you to stay with me all the way. And it's going to be great. And we're going to love it. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. It starts off like this. Uh, now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there's no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, quote-unquote, and many lords, quote-unquote, 
Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Hmm. You mean not everybody's at the same spot I am? Right. You mean we're all at different stages in the journey? Yes. Not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol, and since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again. Let me read that again. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Let me just stop right there. We've got a lot more ground to cover, but let me give some background. First of all, I, thank you, Brad. That was excellent. Just, did you ever think you'd see the day when Brad Williams would be leading communion? I love it. God, what God's doing in you is pretty cool. So thank you, brother. That was awesome. But let me give you some background, okay? So in the, in the first century, people didn't eat meat every day like you and I do. Most of us probably have some form of meat at least once a day in some of our meals. And, and though they just simply did not do that in the first century. The, the only two times that they really ate meat is they ate meat if it was a special occasion, if it's a wedding or some other thing they were celebrating, they would uh, kill the fatted calf and have a good time, right? The other time that they would eat meat would be in their worship at the temple. And the Jews did this and pagans did this. It was very common in the ancient world that you would take your family and you take your sacrifice, your cow, your, your chicken, your whatever it was, and you take that to the temple and in sacrifice to God or to the pagan deity that you were worshiping, you know, you would kill that animal, cook it, and you'd all eat it there as a, as a thanksgiving kind of thing, as a, as a feast for you and your family. So, so that's how they meet right back then. And now I want you to imagine something. Imagine that you are a Corinthian pagan. You're just a good old-fashioned pagan, and you grew up in the city of Corinth, which is located in Greece, right? And, and you've only... You've ever known just going to the pagan temple. I mean, that's what your dad did, your granddad did, your great-granddad did. And going to the pagan temple was just a part of your life. And you guys uh, and all the stuff that goes on there, right? And then you hear the message about Jesus Christ. 
the gospel, the good news. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He's come to earth. He died for you on a cross. We just celebrated it this morning. And he wants to make you right with himself, right? And so you receive that great news that Jesus is your Savior. And now you've got to break away from this whole thing that was a part of what your life was, right? And Corinth was littered with pagan temples. I mean, the city of Corinth was dominated by the temple to Apollo, Apollo, and then all of his underlings, and like every street corner had a pagan temple on. I mean, it was the city was littered by it. And so you're still living in the city of Corinth, but now you're trying to follow Jesus, right? And now you have these Christians in the church in Corinth, and they had these two different ideas about this issue of meat, you know? So you had Christian A. Christian A says, you know, it's just meat. And, uh, and it's a pagan temple, you know, but you know what? It's just a building. It's, it means nothing to me. That's just where I go to get a good steak. You know, that's it. And, and Christian B over here is horrified. You, you, you mean that's meat that got sacrificed to demons. That meat has demons in it. And so you're eating demons. I mean, and it's a pagan temple. You know what goes on with pagan temples? You know, I can't, I'm, I'm aghast that my Christian brother would think it was okay to do such a thing. And now you have a division in the church. Follow? And this is what Paul is addressing. Now look at you and I don't have a problem with steak. I mean, I know we got a few vegetarians among us, but you're probably not a vegetarian for religious reasons. You're probably a vegetarian for other reasons, right? So it's not quite the same issue. But let me just bring up two issues that are probably more akin to our modern ears. Christian A says, I can have a beer in a bar. That's no big deal. It's just a beer. It's just a bar. I'm not getting drunk. It's not. Christian B says, what? Christians don't do that. Follow? Or maybe, you know what? I can go play the slots at Mohegan Sun. It's not a big deal. I take 20 bucks. I have a good time. I'm just, it's just entertainment. Or, or Christian B says, do you know what happens in casinos? I could never. And then you'd call yourself a Christian, right? So we have, we have this division. Are you following? Can we modernize? And I'm not going to tell you one way or another about either one of those issues. I just want to use them as a modern example. The thing is this. Sometimes the issue is not really the issue. Sometimes the issue is just what God uses to reveal the condition of my heart. Like Paul says, verse 8, food doesn't bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat, and we're no better if we do. It's just food. It's not a, you know, a steak is an amoral thing, right? It's just a glass of beer. It, 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 it can't sin. You know what I mean? It. But what I do with it can be a sin. You tracking? And my attitude towards it can be a sin. You follow this? And this is what he's saying. It's the, it's the, the issue is not the issue. The issue reveals my heart. That's the issue. And if in my heart 
I'm dishonoring the body of Christ, which means my brothers and sisters in Christ, by what I do, that is a problem. And both of these Christians are guilty of it. Christian B is guilty of saying, you know, forget you, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm, I'm free. Jesus died to set me. I'm allowed to do this. You right? That's just as wrong as Christian B judging Christian A for exercising his or her freedom. True? Both are in the wrong. Both have a heart thing that got to get dealt with. And that's what Paul's talking about. And then he comes, Paul comes, this is his own conclusion in, chapter, in verse 13. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I'll never have a hamburger again. If, if the hamburger is going to cause a problem for my brother and my sister, then the hamburger's got to go. Why? Because I love you more than I love the hamburger. You see, as Christians, we're called to a higher law. We're not... Here's the beautiful message of Christianity. You have been set free. The rules no longer apply to you. They really don't. You are no longer governed by the same rules that everybody else is governed by. However, you are governed by one very big guiding factor, and that is this. You, my friend, are called to love. You are held to the law of love. Not to the laws of the land, but to the law of love. And now everything you do or everything you don't do has to be run through that. And, if it, and which means that am I free to do this? I am, absolutely, as we'll see in a moment. However, if this is dishonoring my brother or my sister in Christ, if it's causing them to stumble, it's causing them to fall, I love you more than I love that. That has to go. And then Paul gives us two examples a, negative, a positive example and a negative example. So he's really trying to drive this point home. You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Chapter 9 is, is the first example. Paul uses himself as an example, okay? And look at chapter 9, verse 1. Paul goes, hey, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Huh? I kind of picture him with a little bit of an attitude. He goes, are, are you, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? I mean, come on. Have you, are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Uh, don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who have to work for a living? I love, I I think he kind of gets a little snarky. I'm just saying, that's how I read it. You know, am I the only, am I the only apostle that has to work for a living? So don't I have the right to these things? Don't I have the right to eat and drink? Don't I have the right to get married if I want to get married? Don't I have that right? And the answer, of course, is yes. And then verses 7 through 14, the apostle, he gives a couple of examples, a soldier, 
who gets paid for his work and a farmer who gets to eat what he plants and takes care of, right? And a, a shepherd who gets to benefit from his flock. So he's using these examples, meaning, hey, I have the right to this. So he has the right. Verse 12, if others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? And here's the kicker, but we did not use this right. You know, um, it's a mark of maturity when you recognize the rights that you have and then you choose to not exercise them. A lot of people demand their rights. That's very immature. A lot of people demand rights they don't even have. That's very immature. Maturity says, oh, no, I have all of these rights, and I'm simply choosing to not exercise this one, this one, and this one because I love you, because I want to do what's best for you. So that's why I'm going to hold back on what I can do in favor of my love for you. Follow that? And that's what Paul says he's doing. I have the right to that. I can eat a steak if I want a steak. I have the right to demand payment for my services as an apostle. I have a right for all. I I could take a wife if I wanted to have a wife. I mean, I can do all these things, but I'm choosing not to. Why? Because I love you guys. That's why. why. I would rather die, he says, than to have anybody deprive me of this boast. And maybe it's a little bit of Paul in there. Verse 16, for I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I might offer it free of charge. And so not make use of my rights in preaching it. So you see what he's doing? You are free, free to do anything you would like. The, wor- the, the world is your oyster. Go get it. So now choose wisely what you do and consider how your life impacts others' lives because you're governed by the law of love. You're not governed by the rules of religion. And then Paul says in verse 19, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. So to the Jews, I become like a Jew. To those under the law, I become like one under the law. Though look at what he says, though I myself am not under the law, but I make myself under the law as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I become like one who's not having the law. Though, you know, I'm not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. See, so I am under a law. Just, it's just a higher law. I, and he says, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I become weak. To the, win the weak. I've become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last 
forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I don't fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. I don't want to be disqualified, he says, for the prize. I'm running the race to win the race. I'm in it to win it. And I don't want to be disqualified. You know, isn't it interesting how disqualification can happen? You know, you, you run the whole race, and let's say you win the race. You, you cross the line first, and you're just about to get your gold medal because you came in first. And then they do the replay, and they discover, oh, you cut that corner over there. Sorry. And they take your medal away. You, got, you lost your medal like on a technicality. Doesn't that stink? That's called disqualified for the prize. Does that make sense? And Paul's saying, look it, I don't want to, I'm, I'm selling out for Jesus. I'm running as hard as I can run. I'm in this thing to win this thing. And he says, and there's no way that when I finally cross the line, I want to make sure that they don't replay the tape and go, yeah, but you, yeah, sorry. I don't want to be disqualified for the prize. Now listen, let's clarify this. To be disqualified for the prize does not mean you've lost your salvation. Let's not equate those two. Okay, he's not suggesting that you run the race and, uh, oops, you messed up once, sorry, to hell with you, boom, sorry, stinks to be you. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about rewards. He's talking about the, listen up, let me put it this way. The devil cannot steal your salvation from you. But he can steal your blessings. And an awful lot of us are being robbed blind. Can I say that again? The devil cannot steal your salvation from you. He can't. Jesus paid for, that is Rock solid. There's no way he can steal that from you. But he can steal the blessings associated with your salvation. He can steal that from you all day long. And that's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, there's no way I'm going to run this race. And then somehow, I, I, I want everything that Jesus died to give for me. I'm running to win this thing. And I won't be disqualified. And in the context, let's come back to our context. That's really important. What, how, do I get disqual- how do I disqualify myself for the prize? Well, my attitude towards other brothers and sisters in Christ and how I exercise my freedom as a child of God So both Christian A and Christian B are in danger of being disqualified for the prize. Does this make sense? Christian A is in danger because he disregards Christian B. Forget about it. I'm allowed to do what I want to do. And Christian B is in danger of being disqualified for the prize because he's the church lady living in judgment of Christian A and judging their freedom. So both are in danger of being disqualified for the prize. And just in case we're not quite sure how this means, the Apostle Paul gives us one more example, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So he's the positive example. He uses himself as the positive example. I have these rights, and I'm choosing to not use them because I love you guys. 
However, there's these guys, the ancient Israelites. They, you don't want to follow their example. Verse 1, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers. See, right away it tells you these guys are the negative example, right? I don't want you to be ignorant of this. you got to know this, guys that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. So he goes back to this example of the ancient Israelites. Remember the Jews? They're in Egypt for 400 years, and then Moses, you know, rescues them out, right? That's a picture of salvation in the Bible. you're, You're in Egypt, you're lost, and God steps in and rescues you out. And so then they all came out, and notice they're all under the same cloud. They're all under the same blessings, right? They've got... You see what you notice the emphasis in that text? Same spiritual drink, same spiritual food, same clouds, same Red Sea. These guys are all experiencing the same blessings. Which, by the way, let me just give a little parenthetical aside. Can we do that just for a second? You know, a lot of people wonder, maybe you do too, about why did God not let Moses go into the promised land for, for hitting the rock, Right? You think, that seems kind of unfair of God. You know, there's two different times where God tells, where the people were thirsty, and God brings them to a rock, and the first time God tells Moses, hit the rock, and he hit the rock, and water came out, and everybody got water. And then the second time, they're thirsty, and God says, hey, speak to the rock, and Moses hits the rock, and water comes out, and then God goes, sorry, Moses, you're out. And he didn't let Moses get into the promised land because he hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock. And I know sometimes we read that and we say, boy, how horribly unfair. I mean, with everything that Moses did for God, every, I mean, the guy is arguably one of the best of the best. Why would God just, again, on a technicality, right? So, so he had a bad day. He hit the rock. He didn't talk to it. Okay, big deal. Let him in anyway. That would be our approach. Until you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and you realize something. Verse 3, that same, they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was, who was that rock? Yeah. Can I ask you something? How many times does Jesus have to be struck in order to provide life-giving water to your soul? Is Jesus still being struck? Is Jesus, no, yes? It's not a trick question. Right. You see, in essence, God's saying, listen, my son only needs to die once. We're not going to take him through that again and again and again and again. One strike is enough. The next time your soul is thirsty, I don't need to crucify my son again. All you have to do is ask for it. And he will be there and he will flood his life giving water into your soul and draw you to him. Jesus paid that price once. He doesn't need to get struck over and over and over and over again. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10 suggests the same exact principle. 
There's only one sacrifice for sins, and there's no more sacrifice left, it says. Jesus died one time for all of us. End of story. Now he doesn't need to be struck. He just needs to be spoken to. So anyway, that's the parentheses. We're going to come back now. So Paul says, these people, they all enjoy these great benefits, and yet look what happened. Their bodies were strewn over the desert. I mean... Wow, that's not a great picture. Talk about missing the mark. These people are all set free. Are they not? Set free out of Egypt. And they're on their way to the promised land. Like the promises are right there within sight, you know? And one after another, they're dropping dead in the desert. And they didn't get there. And his, Paul's message is, look, at you, it's, it's the same idea. You don't want to be disqualified. You don't want to be out of the gate, cruising for the promised land. And then, right? And then verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters. As some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and, on, and in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. Four things, four things that he says that they did. They, they were idolaters. Let me, let me um, summarize what these are. Idolatry. Idolatry is anything, anything that you place your trust in other than God. That is an idol. Your savings account, your retirement account, your husband or your wife, your, your reputation, your job, whatever it is. Anything that you place your trust in other than God is an idol. Sexual immorality. It's any sex act outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Testing the Lord. You know, God gives the tests. We don't. The student does not test the teacher. The teacher tests the student. Right? And so, the student, you and I in this situation... It's not our place to test the teacher. And we test him when we question his goodness, when we question why he would do something the way that he did it, as though we would somehow know better. I mean, God, if I was in charge, I'd have done this, this, and this. Right, well, you're not in charge. That's the whole point. And aren't we glad we're not in charge, right? And yet we test the Lord, do we not? And then grumbling. Grumbling is any time that I... That I Stop being thankful for the good things that God has given to me. And when I begin to have the attitude of, God, what have you done for me lately? And, I mean, how come you haven't given me this now? Because I want this. And grumbling, grumbling. He says these four things, these are things that disqualified these people for the prize. They, that this is what made their bodies, this is what got them scattered across the desert. This is what caused them to fall short of the promised land, he says. And look at verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for who? For who? Uh, who? 
Thank you, Cindy, but we need more. Yeah. Who? For us. Examples for us, right? On whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Christian A stands firm on their principle that I am free. I can do whatever I want to do because it's only a whatever and I'm free to do it. He says to Christian A, be careful that you think you're standing lest you fall. And Christian B says, oh, I'm so holy because I've never done that. I would never go there or drink that or say that or do that. I'm so wonderful. Paul says, be careful that you think you're standing lest you fall. And then he comes into verse 13. I started with this. I told you we'd get back to it. He says, there is no temptation that has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. God bless you. Temptation has seized you. So that's an unfortunate translation because it causes you to think, it, it, lo- it looks like you and I are innocent victims to temptation. You know, as though somehow I'm just walking down the street and this thing called temptation just reaches out its slimy hands and grabs a hold of me and sucks me in. And that's not exactly the way that it works. The word seized there is the Greek word lambano. It means to receive. So note, you've not received a temptation. So yes, temptation is there. And you have the choice to receive it. And if I, so I have the power, you see, to not receive the temptation. The best way out of a temptation is to not get into it. Follow? The best way out of a temptation is to keep my eyes on Jesus, firmly fixed. The best way out of a temptation is to die to myself, to live every moment for the glory of God and for the good of others. And he says, that, you see, no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. By the way, we all struggle with this. It's not an issue that only one person has. We all have it. You know, the devil wants you to think that you're the only one who has this problem. Isolation will lead to elimination. And that's what he does all the time. So understand, uh, you're not important enough to be the only one in the universe to have this problem. I love you, but that's just the truth. We all have the same problem. It's a common problem. He says, and God is faithful. And he won't let you tempted beyond what you can bear, what he gives you the power. The word bear there is the word dunamis. means dynamite. He gives you the power, right? He's giving you the power to not receive that temptation. But when you do, when you, when you do end up, because we all get there, he says, God will provide a way out. He's going to, your key to this, friend, is to not do it alone. I find that the, the closer I can walk with Jesus, the more resilient I am towards the temptations of this world and this life. And then Paul kind of finishes it all off, verse 23 in chapter 10. So here's his conclusion, and we're going to wrap it up right here. 
Everything is permissible, he says, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Everything is permissible. See what I mean? You're free. Jesus didn't die on a cross to make you religious. He didn't die on a cross so you'd be stuck in a whole system of rules for the rest of your life. That's not why he did that. He died on a cross to genuinely set you free. You're free. All things are permissible. But not everything is beneficial. As a free person, you now have the choice. Is it beneficial? Is it constructive? So beneficial meaning beneficial to me. Constructive meaning is it beneficial to someone else? So how does this activity affect me and affect those that I love? And as I run it through that grid, now, you see, I've got a, um, I've got a way to evaluate my activities tracking and then paul closes it out with this verse 31 so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do do it all for the glory of god don't cause anyone to stumble whether jews greeks or the church of god even as i try to please everybody in every way for i'm not seeking my own good but the good of many so that they may be saved follow my example as i follow the example of christ Paul says, follow my example. I have every right to do anything that I would want to do, but I choose not to because I love you. And Paul says, follow my example. Don't follow the Israelites' example. Remember, their bodies all ended up in the desert. No, 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 no. Follow Paul's example, who had his rights and laid them aside because of love for his brothers and sisters in Christ. So then you know... And, and I've been, let me come back to my beginning statement. So, the worship team, you can lead us if you would. Sometimes the things that separate us from God are not the big, heinous, ugly sins. Sometimes the things that separate us from God are the most subtle things like my attitude towards how my behavior might affect a brother or sister in Christ. Isn't that something? And so I look back in my own life in the last couple of weeks and I say, well, yeah, self has definitely kind of reared its ugly head a little bit. And you know what's funny? I, I compare it to this. It's like having a sliver in my finger. You know, I don't have the whole board, just a sliver, right? But that's all it takes to disrupt things. And I look at my life and I say, well, yeah, self. I got slivers of it in the way that I react to my wife, the way that I react to my children, the way that I react to you. Um, it rears its ugly head in the simplest and most common of ways. And so, 
I guess my, my message to you this morning, friend, is uh, that A, we need to be vigilant about our relationship with God. Like Paul said, I don't want to be disqualified for the prize. I don't want to run the whole race and find out I lost my prize on a technicality. I mean, I won the race, but I lost the prize, right? I don't want to do that. And so that tells me that this, that I need to be really vigilant about this and that it's not always the obvious stuff. It's the, not, it's the subtle stuff that creates a distance between me and God. And I want that gone as well. Um, and that a lot of it has to do with myself. And I'm just telling this, maybe, maybe this is you, but I'm telling this is me. A lot of it's myself and my attitude towards the people that God places in my life. And the Holy Spirit is convicting me on that. So, don't quite know what he's talking to you about in this moment, but that's what he's talking to me about. So I want to open up our altar as we close this service this morning and just simply allow each one of us to meet God in your own space, you know? And, uh, and what, whatever the Holy Spirit is uh, putting His finger on in your soul, I would simply encourage you to, to respond to Him, to not put Him off. Right now is the time. And now's the time. So would you stand with me? And, uh, and worship team sing and our, our altar's open. I invite you to come and join me for prayer here if you will.